It's good to be back. Feels like a long time since I've been here, and it it has. Um, but um, I spent a lot of time this week going back and just trying to reconnect by watching the services online. And uh, and Brock brought it the last couple of weeks, so so um, I shouldn't be surprised by that. But I, sometimes I am. But. Uh, let, let me begin this morning just by confessing, okay? Because confession is good for the soul, and I'm just kind of tired of the shame, okay? I'm tired of the shame. I'm tired of the guilt. I'm tired of all of it, okay? I am an Astros fan, okay? Have been my whole life. I can't change it. I'm just going to wear it with honor. figure that sign out, would you? It's good to be back. It's good to be back. We are going to continue this morning our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're calling this uh, series Great Expectations. And we're just going to begin with one verse this morning. And then we're just going to kind of jump around a little bit and then uh, eventually tackle the first 18 verses of chapter 6 of the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bible, open it up there. The the verses should come up on the screen behind me. But this is what the Word of the Lord says in Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I'll read it again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. There's a radical shift that takes place right here in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus had spent a lot of time talking about matters of the heart, attitudes of the heart, things that, that go on in here that people can't see because sometimes they don't make it out into actions. They're just hatred or their lust or their things that, that go on inside. But here in, in Matthew chapter 6, he makes a radical shift from the inward to the outward displays. What does it mean to practice righteousness in order to be seen by them? What what is Jesus talking about? Remember just a a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said this. He said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand it gives light to all in the house, in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Same guy. Just a few verses earlier said, you are the light of the world. Lights are meant to be seen. Lamps are meant to be lit, not hidden. And he says, in the same way, our lights, our good works are to shine, to be seen. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said it this way. He says that, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why this warning? Beware. Beware is not a great word. It's not a great way to start a sentence, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Is practicing righteousness wrong? Well, clearly not. Because Jesus said, you are a city on a hill. 
let your light so shine that they may see your good work. So it's not about practicing, it's about motive. It's all a question of why are we doing what we're doing. Motive is everything. There's an example that, that displays this really clearly in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, right as the church was getting going, a, a man named Barnabas sold a piece of land and he brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet and it was a beautiful thing. It was a beautiful thing because his motive was pure. But then two other people named Ananias and Sapphira were watching this and they thought, well, Barnabas seems to be getting some good press for this and so they also sold a piece of land, but they kept a little for themselves without telling anybody. No one had asked them to do this. They had just decided to do it because they wanted to be seen by people, and it didn't go so well for them. As a matter of fact, as soon as Ananias lays the gift down, they said, why would you have done such an evil thing? And he dropped dead on the spot. His wife, not knowing that this has happened, comes in a little later and she perpetuates the lie. And she also falls dead on the spot. People, motive is everything. Are we about the praise of men or about pleasing the Father? Are we about pretension and religious posturing or about purity of heart? It's a question for each of us to ask ourselves today because I can't answer that for you. And it's something you have to constantly check yourself on. When I, th when I think about this, I, I think about my friend Kevin Wiley. Kevin plays the drums back here. And I remember I, the day that they came to Join the Journey. And, and I, I tell this story in Join the Journey a lot because I think Kevin desperately wanted something that he didn't have yet. Where is Kevin? There he is. Hey, where's your name tag, Kevin? This is National Name Tag Month, dude. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. This is not about me, okay? Kevin is a guy that takes his faith as serious as anybody I know. And I've had many conversations with him where he beats himself up or doing the right thing, and then he gets in his own head and he starts thinking, did I do the right thing for the right reason? And then it's like he's lost his heaven bucks, you know, because, uh, and is, is this a real battle in you, my friend? I mean, it's something that it's beautiful to see someone take it so seriously, but it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Why do we do the things we do? Because you can do the exact right thing for the wrong reason, and it doesn't lead you to the place that you're wanting to go. It's not a question of if we should practice these things. Okay? Let me say that out loud first. It's not a question of if we should do these things that Jesus is going to mention. He's going to mention three in just a second. He's going to talk, talk about giving. He's going to talk about praying. He's going to talk about fasting. It's not an inclusive list. Okay? But these are three examples that he gives. And it's not a question, child of God, if you should do those things. These things should be present in the life of every believer. Okay? Every believer should give because God so loved the world that he gave his son. 
that we might believe in him and have eternal life. He starts the gospel with giving. It's about Jesus giving himself away. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down their life for their friends. They give themselves away. It's not a matter of if we should practice these things. He says three different times, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, fast, assuming that you're going to be doing these things, that they're going to be a part of your life. But the why behind the actions is critical. It's critical. Why are we doing these things? Of course we should practice them. Jesus had just finished saying in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. You only get good at something by practicing it, right? I remember a Haiti trip in 2000, in December of 2000. My son Cody was on that trip. He was 15 years old at the time. He had never picked up a guitar. But for whatever reason, on that trip, God kind of, kind of revealed a giftedness in him, a desire to do something. And guess what? He comes home. We come home from that trip. His birthday is right after that trip. And so I buy him the same guitar that I had with me in Haiti. And for the next, I don't know how many years, we never saw Cody again. He's in his room all the time practicing. And I've never seen anyone learn guitar as fast as he did. And it's about the things that are important to us. We practice, right? We practice them. Because the more we practice, the better we get at them. So I'm not saying don't practice righteousness. Yes, please practice righteousness. But why? Don't do it so other people can see it. Do it because it pleases the heart of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. I want to read this to you. It says, says this, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. It's a sad indictment on the human condition that we practice sin, don't we? You have, you have your little favorites, right? That you don't want to admit to, but it's, it's your, kind of your go-to, your guilty pleasure or whatever. If we're not careful we'll find ourselves practicing that so we get better at it. Maybe better at covering it up. Maybe just getting better at it, period, right? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Who does, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Guys, practicing righteousness is not an if statement. It's a when. You're supposed to do these things. Now how are you going to do them? And so with that in mind, Jesus gives us three practical examples in this passage about practicing righteousness. He tells us the right way and the wrong way. Now let's read the passage in context, okay? So we're back at, in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to read Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Are we ready? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. What, what will your reward be? Nada. Nothing. 
This is important stuff, guys. Verse 2, thus, when you give to the needy. Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret may reward you. Verse 7, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Verse 16, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Father, bless the reading of your word. Open our eyes to its truth. Let our hearts be fertile soil where your word can sink in and grow roots. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Break us so you can put us back together again. And that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Three examples. Giving, praying, fasting. We're going to take just a few minutes and, and look at each of those things, okay? And then I'm going to be done. All right? We ready? Giving. According to uh, the, the uh, theologian William Barclay, he says this in his commentary of Matthew, To the Jew, the giving of alms, or giving to the needy, was the most sacred of all religious duties. It stood first in the catalog of good works. There's a, rab a rabbinic saying that says this, and I quote, Greater is he who gives alms than he who offers all other sacrifices. To the Jews, this was a big deal. Giving to the poor, taking care of the poor, it was a really, really big deal. And Jesus is addressing this, and he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. What does this mean? Is this symbolic? Is it literal? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. See, originally, back in the day, there was an area on the side of the temple courtyard called the Chamber of Secret. And it was a place that had this, this large chest they called the trumpet. And people would discreetly, in privacy, in humility, they would go to the chamber of secret and they would drop gifts for the poor in this chest. That's how it started out. And then those gifts would be discreetly distributed from that place. But the Pharisees over the years, they, they got tired of having to go all the way to the temple to give to the poor, and so they literally started putting trumpets 
on their belt? A trumpet, okay? Not a large chest, a trumpet. And they wouldn't go to the temple, they would go to the street corner and they would get their trumpet and they would play their little song. And as they played their song, the poor people would come out because they knew that sound. And they would gather around the Pharisee, the generous Pharisee, so they could celebrate not just the gift, but how great the giver of this gift was. And I'm not talking about God. And that's what this process had devolved into. The Pharisees using this practice of righteousness to make much of themselves. Jesus says of these people, they have their reward in full. That's what you want. You want people, these people, to think much of you. Well, you got it. And that's all you're getting. I was reading this passage uh, when I was in Haiti. And it's interesting. When you're in the midst of an eight-day trip where all you're basically doing is finding needy and poor people to give things to. And I'm reading this passage and I'm thinking, gosh, this is so odd to be preaching this passage on the heels of this experience. I mean, because I have all these stories I could tell. But what stories should I tell? And what stories should I keep to myself? Well, I'm going to tell you some stories, okay? Because it's not about me. I'm a very, very small player in a very, very big story. And I think as long as we keep that attitude in mind, I think it's okay to let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven, okay? But if this becomes a me story, or an Abby story, or a Larry story, or a Randy story, or whoever's there, then it's not his story anymore. Does that make sense? 1st part of the, the trip was kind of a normal trip for me. It was like um, Valencia wanted to spend some time with, with her family in the town of Jockmel, and you got to go over the mountain past all the places where we've worked for years. And so we did that. We, we took Valencia and dropped her off there, left her for a couple of days, and on the way back, we, we just I did my checklist. I have people I have to see. People I see every time, they're people that need food, they're people that, that I check in on, and so we did those things. And one of the things that we did was go to a family um, that, that hasn't, hadn't seen their adopted, their daughter that has been adopted to the States, hadn't seen or heard from her in 10 years. And so I, had, I was armed with some, some pictures and, and some gifts for them, and I was so happy to go and to be able to, to say, your little girl is okay, and man, it was beautiful. But one of the things we did is, and this wasn't on the script, but we stopped and we bought some food. And we bought some food for this family and for a widow's family that, that lives in that same area. And so that day we delivered the stuff. It was beautiful. And this family was encouraged and we gave them this food. They couldn't care less about the food. They wanted the pictures. Okay, So that was beautiful. But something about that whole experience kind of stirred my brother Larry Turner's heart. Okay? Um, it had been a while since he'd been in the mountains, I think, and, and he, just, he was just kind of watching. He and Randy were just kind of watching this, and, and uh, Larry says to me, you know, we, what we did today, that, that just, 
It was more than the food. It, it just brought some hope in those people's lives. I want to do more of that. And so fast forward, we drive to Les Anglais, and uh, it's a place where I don't know hardly anyone. I know a couple of people, okay? And so we didn't have an agenda. Abby had her team there, and they were getting the clinic ready and inventory medicines and stuff. And so me and Randy and Larry really didn't have a plan. And so Larry comes marching into my, into my and Randy's room before my feet even hit the floor and says, okay, what's the deal? I don't know, Larry, what's the deal? We got to have a plan. What's the plan? Tell me what the plan is. And I said, Larry, stop asking me questions that you obviously already know the answer to. And he says, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. I think we're supposed to buy food for like 20 families, and we're supposed to just go where the Spirit says and just give it away. Okay, let's do it. Randy, you in? Yep, I'm in. Okay, let's do it. And so before I even get out of the room, he's already got Hippoly going to buy food, okay? And, and they're dividing food up into, in these 20, for 20 families. And so we go to Hippoly and say, Hippoly, we need you, bro. We, you know this area, you know these people. What's the, who's the Holy Spirit telling you we need to go give this stuff to? Hippoly says, I know exactly the place. Okay, I love it when a plan comes together. There was not an agenda to follow. We didn't have to think anymore. We're just following Hippolyte. And if you ever followed Hippolyte, it's a lot like following Jesus, okay? He is just, he is just, he's golden. And so he drives us out of town, out of Les Anglais, further out towards the end of the island. And it's a place called La Croix. La Croix means, in English, the cross. And it's, it's, it also means the suffering. This little village is called the suffering. And as we drive up to it, I'm looking around thinking, I've been here before. And then it hit me. In 2012, December 2012, we, we took an, a team and did an evangelistic crusade in Les Anglais. And one of the nights, we drove out to La Croix and we showed the Jesus film in the middle of the highway. This it's literally right on the beach. Like the road is here, there's some houses right here, and the beach is right over there, okay? It's literally right on the ocean. And when we were there in 2012, there were houses everywhere. I mean, there were several hundred people there that night when we showed that film. But this was a different place. There were no houses. There were just about 10 or 15 makeshift huts that looked a lot like that house that you guys saw, the old house, but worse, because three sides of them were just tarps. See, this place took the brunt of Hurricane Matthew in 2016, the first Category 5 storm in the Atlantic since 2005, went straight through there, destroyed everything. And so when this hits me, I just walk out onto the beach. Because I realize I'm, I'm standing in the same spot, and I realize, what must this have been like for these people? And so it was a beautiful day. I walked down to the beach, and I remember doing this before, that for something about that beach, there are these beautiful white stones that wash up all over the place. And so I was picking up my white stones collection, okay? And so, but I'm out there, beautiful day. The surf, it's, it's pretty tame, but... From that vantage point in Haiti, you're on the southern coast. You're looking towards South America. There is nothing out there but ocean. And I just put myself, 
tried to put myself in their place when Hurricane Matthew turned that tranquil beach into a raging torrent. And there was no place to hide. And so I stood there and I, I, I couldn't, I almost couldn't breathe because I was thinking, I'm about to go talk to these people and I cannot imagine what they've been through. And so I go back up to the truck and, and Larry and, and uh, Randy take the other side of the road and, and me and, and Hippolyte and uh, Lauren take, take this side of the road and, and we just start walking real slowly. Looking for, because we, we set a rule that we were only going to give 10 of the families away at this place, okay? And then we we're going to take 10 somewhere else, okay? So memo to self, don't set limits like that, okay? It doesn't work out that way, okay? So anyway, we start going house to house, just walking real slowly, and I start noticing most of the people there are really old, like 80-something-year-old couples or 80-year-old widows. And I'm thinking, why are... Well, they didn't have anywhere else to go. Their houses blew down, and they had nowhere else to go, so they went right back to the same spot, and they basically put up a tent. And so we show up, and, and I'm just kind of following Hippolyte, and he goes right to this old, old couple. And this guy has a cane. He's sitting down on a bucket. And he has a cane, and he has one bad eye tell it's totally blind, and the other one's just really, really cloudy. And he's got a bunch of gold teeth. And his name is Gilliam. And I sat down in front of him, and I just said, Gilliam. No, I said, I said, what is your name? And his gold teeth, like, lit up. And he said, my name's Gilliam. And it was like the first time, maybe in 50 years, somebody had asked him his name. It's like, wait. And this is what I, what I got from, like, you noticed me. You're talking to me. You asked me my name. And so I just sat in front of him and his wife and asked them their story. Tell me about, what was it like during that storm? And they just, they had no words. They had lost everything. Went a little further down the, down the beach and, and we're about to leave because we'd met our, met our 10 family quota. And Hippolyte's back in the truck up and I see this, this, this 80-year-old man come out and he's just, he's like, we have an appointment. <laughs> That's the vibe I got from, I'm like, you're not leaving, right? Well, you're supposed to talk to me. And I banged on the truck, stopped the truck, and we go talk to this guy. And I can't remember his name, but his, he had lost his whole house. His, wor his words were this, my roof was chasing me. He said, I, I, I was running and my roof was chasing me. I had to dive in a ditch as my roof went over my head. And I asked this guy, what, what do you think about Jesus? And he said, oh, Jesus is my mama and my papa. He's the only thing I have. And I realized that, that that day, our job was really what Larry said. They loved getting the food, but just having someone listen to their stories, realizing that there's no way you can fix it. Guys, that's giving to the needy something much more valuable than rice and beans. And it wasn't for an audience. It was so that God would get the glory. It's one of the reasons I love going to Haiti. 
where people don't know me. See, if I go to, if I go to some parts of Haiti, it's like, it's like I'm really important. Like Pastor Mark, I hear it a thousand times a day, but there, I'm just a guy sitting on a bucket, sitting on a rock in front of a guy sitting on a bucket, saying, tell me your story. I just want you to know that God hasn't forgotten about you. We went a little further out to a place called Lakawan. And Hippolyte showed us a piece of land that God's allowed him to purchase. And he started telling me about his vision for this land. He wants to... See, we took food also, in addition to these 20 families. Harvestfield Ministries does a beautiful thing where they feed widows, like 25 widows every month. Hippolyte drives from Port-au-Prince, and he hand-delivers food once a month to the, all these little widow women. And they are so cute. I mean, they're all about yay tall, and when they hear the truck coming, they come out, and this little frail 60-pound woman picks up a 50-pound bag of rice and puts it on her head. Like she's walking out like this, and then she picks up the thing, and she walks straight back with it on her head. I don't understand it, but it was beautiful. The guy that helps Hippolyte was in the back of the truck with us. This is the day that I got a 15th degree sunburn on my head. Okay, we're sitting in the back. It's just, we're just roasting. And Hippolyte, about half the time, he would drive past the house. And uh, Wilbins, is that his name? Wilbins would bang on the truck. He's Hippolyte's friend from Port-au-Prince, but he obviously knows the route. And he, they bang on the truck, and, and most of the time, Hippolyte backs up. But this time, Hippolyte doesn't back up. He rolls down the window, and uh, Wilbins is saying, and Hippolyte says, no, she passed and Wilbins didn't know. And he's undone. That's the kind of stuff that you see there. That's not about Wilbins or Hippolyte. That's about being the hands and feet of Jesus. And it was a great reminder to me that there are people like that all around us. You don't have to go there to do that stuff. But I talked about Hippolyte's vision, what he wants to do. He didn't want to build a big cathedral to himself. Name it, Hippolyte Fan Fan School for Lackawanne. He wants to build an assisted living center for all those widows so they can all have a bathroom. And he wants to, to have children in the, in the area that don't have anything to be able to live there with them and take care of them. Beautiful vision. Guys, that's practicing righteousness in a beautiful way. And it makes me ashamed. It makes me ashamed at how small my dreams are compared to how big Hippolyte's dreams are. Enough of that. There's an interesting phrase in, uh, in this passage where, where Jesus says, when you give to the needy, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Um, and it... One simple explanation, I, I saw this, is that, that could mean don't, don't reach in your pocket with one hand to give something away and raise your other hand to draw attention to yourself, okay? Like, oh, look at me, what I'm doing. That's one way to look at it. But the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, um, had this to say about this, this phrase, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And I'm just going to read it. It says this. The better righteousness of the disciples must have a motive which lies beyond itself. 
Of course, it has to be visible, but they must take care that it does not become visible simply for the sake of becoming visible. Visibility is never an end in itself. And if it becomes so, we've lost sight of our primary aim, which is to follow Jesus. We are therefore confronted with a paradox. Our activity must be visible, but never be done for the sake of making it visible. Let your light so shine before men, and yet take care to hide it. There is a pointed contrast between chapters 5 and 6. That which is visible must also be hidden. How is this paradox to be resolved? And he says this, The first question to ask is, From whom are we to hide the visibility of our discipleship? From whom are we supposed to hide it? Jesus said, don't do it in front of men to be seen by them. So so clearly, if that's your motive, that's one layer of this, okay? I don't want to just be nice to you so that you see me being nice to you, and then I have my reward, okay? That's part of it, but there's something else going on here. And Bonhoeffer says this. He says, certainly not from other men, for we we are told to let them see our light. No. We are to hide it from ourselves. Our task is to simply keep on following, looking only to our leader who goes on before, taking no notice of ourselves or what we are doing. Hide it from ourselves. What what does this mean? What am I trying to say? I'm saying this. In other words, stop watching the scoreboard. Stop keeping a tally mark of every time we do something good. Start fresh every day. Like it never even happened because we can't live on that. His mercies are new today. His Spirit is doing something today. And if we're so self-satisfied that, oh, I did such a great thing in Haiti two weeks ago, today I'm just going to mail it in. That's why we don't let our right hand know what our left hand is doing. Have amnesia when it comes to this stuff, trusting that God's keeping the scoreboard. I think he's trying to send me a signal. (laughs) Start fresh every day, guys. Act like it never happened. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. Bonhoeffer says this, all that the follower of Jesus has to do is make sure that his obedience, following, and love are entirely spontaneous and unpremeditated. If you do good, you must not let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. You must be quite unconscious of it. And then Jesus says, and when you do it, do it all in secret. So that your giving may be in secret in verse 4. And it's this, this way for all three of these things. In verse 6, he says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to the Father who sees in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, That your fasting may be not seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Guys, there's something about the person we are when no one else is around that screams so much louder about who we really are than what I do in front of you than what you do in front of other people. So, to close this giving thing, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, you've heard this verse. It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly 
will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each, must, each of us must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The message translation of this verse says, a stingy planter gets a stingy crop, but a lavish planter gets a lavish crop. See, giving people, giving is not an expense in the kingdom. It's an investment in the kingdom. Anything that you give away in Jesus' name, He promises. I don't know if it's in this life or the life to come, but you're not going to outgive Him. It's an investment in this kingdom. Guys, I want us to be investors. I want us to be investors in the kingdom. We have a we will statement that just says this. We will be a church marked by extravagant generosity. Guys, we can't just do that one time and keep the scoreboard. Oh, the house. Oh, yeah, built the house. We were great. Yay, us. Forget about that. There are more needs out there than we could ever think to meet on our own. But we get the chance today to invest in the kingdom again. Does that make sense? Don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen by people. Don't keep score. Real quickly, the last two. Praying. Jesus said, when you pray like this, when you pray, pray like this. He did not say, when you pray, pray exactly this. See, in the, in the King James Version, it says, avoid vain repetitions. Guys, there are people all over the place that chant the Lord's Prayer. I, I remember playing middle school basketball. Coach Weaver would hand out Hershey bars with almonds as we're reciting the Lord's Prayer. Half the guys didn't even know it. They're just eating their candy bar. Kingdom, glory, amen. Not the most spiritual of exercises. There are people that turn this thing into an incantation. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus couldn't even pray this prayer? It's not the Lord's Prayer. Why would you say that, Mark? You're a blasphemer. I would say it because can you see Jesus saying, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our sins. He didn't have any sins. This is a model prayer for disciples of Jesus. Okay? It's... I read several people that said it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. But two things I want to say about this. Number one, verses 14 and 15 have always confused me. Don't you love it when a, when a preacher gets up and says, I'm going to tell you what this means. I don't have a fat clue what this means. Okay? Welcome to my world. This is where I live. Verses 14 and 15 say this. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive your others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. Anybody else confused by that? Does it make anybody uncomfortable? See, if this is the danger in just cherry-picking verses that don't paint an accurate picture of the whole gospel. Okay? If you just take those verses... Doesn't it sound like a works-based, legalistic kind of, if you do this, God will do this. You forgive first, and then God will forgive you. That's what it says, right? Is that what it means? I'm just going to say, I don't think this can be talking about something that affects your salvation. Because if it was, it runs contrary to the whole gospel of grace. Okay? 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's a gift, so no one can boast about it. If you're forgiven because you forgive first, that's a work, right? That, that's something that you did. That, that cannot be what it means. I like this verse, Ephesians 4, 32. I think it paints a better picture. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, present tense, forgiving one another as Christ, as God in Christ forgave you, past tense. You are forgiven if you're in Christ. We are forgiven. Can someone say that together? We are, we are, we are forgiven, past tense, completed, a present reality, a positional reality in Christ. You are forgiven. Therefore, our ongoing behavior should bear witness to that reality. Because we are forgiven, we have no choice but to forgive. That makes sense? Because we are forgiven, we should forgive continually. Vernon McGee in his commentary of Matthew says this, Today God is forgiving us on the basis of what Christ has done for us, not on the basis by which we forgive. It does not refer to our salvation when we read forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's speaking here to those who are already saved, those who already have the nature of God in them. He does not wait for you to forgive before He forgives. This is not His method of handling the sin question. He gave His Son to die. And that is the basis on which God forgives. He forgives because of Jesus. I want to give you some really quick pointers about praying. Anybody... Any computer idiots in the room? Liars. Okay, I'm a computer idiot. I remember back in the day, there's these, these yellow and black books. I think you can still find them. And it says like Excel for dummies, right? Word for dummies. Computer for dummies. This is what I would call praying for dummies. Not praying for dummies. You should pray for dummies. But that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying praying on the simple level from this passage, number one, it should be secret. You should pray in private before you ever pray in public. Make sense? I mean, I'm not saying don't pray, don't pray in public, but don't do it by standing up and, and just uttering a bunch of words. He says that's, that's what the pagans do. They think that, that God will be impressed by the volume and the, and the multitude of their words. Don't do that. Pray in secret where your Father alone can hear you. Pray in sincerity. Don't, don't, don't just pray something because you heard somebody else pray it and thought, oh, that made them sound good. That, that sounded spiritual to me. Pray in secret. Pray with sincerity. Pray short prayers. You should all go, Phew. You don't have to spend hours praying for the nations in the 1040 window every day. You can. That's a great thing. But pray short prayers. Why? Because God already knows what you need before you ask Him. And Jesus says, hey, it's not about the multitude of words. It's about praying what your heart's saying. Keep it short. Keep it simple. See, because this is the deal. Prayer is not about informing God of anything. He knows everything. It's about connecting with God. Praying is about connecting with Him. And here's, here's another thing I would say. When you pray, listen more than you talk. Just listen. Because so often we just like, 
It's like, God, this is what I need. Boom, boom, boom. This is what these people need. Boom, boom, boom. And then amen, and we're off to the next thing. What about not saying amen? Being in a constant state of a conversation. You know, when I talk to my wife, I don't say, Angie, I'm talking to you right now. Are you listening? To, I'm talking to you. But when we talk to God, we say it like this. Lord, I pray, um, Lord, I pray this and this and this. You don't think he knows you're praying? I mean, so much of our, 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 our prayer life is rote stuff. I'm saying honest, simple conversations that don't end. Being willing to keep it open so he can respond would be a great way to pray. There are people in this place that are so much better at praying than I am. I am so grateful for the prayer warriors in this place. You should be too. There are people praying over your life in ways that you don't, you don't know. And they're not, they're not doing it out of some rote habit. They're doing it out of a, a desire in their heart for you to experience God. It's a beautiful thing. He then goes on and he talks about fasting. And I know I'm, I'm out of time. Fasting, what is fasting? Fasting is a spiritual discipline that is lost in the church today for the most part. Um, because we're overwhelmed by the, oh, Jesus was in the wilderness, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. It's a pretty high standard. Fasting was a regular part of the life of the Jew and in the early church. It simply means this, choosing to abstain from some earthly pleasure for a spiritual benefit. It can be food. It can be, I want to be, be physically hungry so that I think in spiritual terms. So I want to be physically hungry so I can be fed spiritually. But it can also be a lot of other things. Bonhoeffer, in his book, he says this, when the flesh is satisfied, it's hard to pray with cheerfulness or to devote one's life of service, oneself to a life of service, which calls for so much self-renunciation. So much of our lives as, as Christians is about denying ourselves and blessing others, right? And when our flesh is totally satisfied, when we've just had Thanksgiving dinner, how productive are we? I mean, when, when all we want to do is unbutton our pants and take a nap. Because spirit, when, when the flesh is satisfied, guys, the spirit is dull. Again, though, it's all about motive. You don't gain anything by just telling everybody you're fasting or, or looking miserable. We did a church-wide fast at a church in, in Houston one time, and it was like a seven-day fast. And oh, my gosh. <laughs> the moaning and the whining of people, oh, I'm so hungry, it's been two days. And it's like, well, if we're going to complain about it, I think we're missing the point. I mean, I really think it's supposed to be a personal thing, and complaining is not my favorite thing anyway, you know, so I'm probably not the person to talk to about that. But when you fast, when? Not if. Deny yourself something in this life for a period of time for a spiritual purpose. Do it. You will not regret it. See, you know what I've, I've, I've found in fasting is if you want to break a spiritual stronghold in your life, fast from something with that in mind and see if God does not meet you there and break those chains. Closing thoughts. What are we practicing? You're practicing something. Sin or righteousness. It's not a question of of if you should practice, but when and why. Motive is everything. When you give people, don't sound a trumpet. 
Don't sound a trumpet. Make much of God, not yourself. Don't keep score. Let Him keep score. Hide it from yourself. Invest in the kingdom. When you pray, pray like this. But don't just think you have to pray exactly that. Pray in private before you pray in public. Be secret, sincere, short, and simple. It's liberating. Pray. Praying is about connecting with God. It's not about giving Him information. Deny yourself something for a spiritual purpose. Pray with me. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for uh, the way it challenges me. Just the, the simplest, simplest things that, that I do. It, it just challenges me. I, having this conversation with, with Randy on the trip. God, is, is what I do on Sundays, is that me practicing my righteousness in front of people? God, if it is, God, don't, don't let me do that. But if I'm, I'm sharing your truth, God, I pray that you would be the one speaking. And if there's any conviction, it would come from you. God, we all have to check ourselves. Because left to our own Flesh, we are going to make the wrong choices. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us up? Show us how to, to live this life. Show us how to practice righteousness in a way that makes you smile. And I pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Let's uh, stand and worship in response to the word.